0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: One way that people react to it is just to kind of like put your head down and just like throw yourself even harder into the things that you can, you feel you can control, the things you've already been told that you're good at, places where you've gotten encouragement like high school academics. If you had, like I did teachers, people who just said, hey, you're a good student, you, you have potential, then you think, well, okay, I will just try to put all my energy into pleasing those people.
0: Writing Dave Itzkoff, the New York Times culture reporter on his relationship with his late father, who had a crippling cocaine addiction, and how he broke out to make a name for himself, including an acclaimed biography of tormented funny man Robin Williams. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others, and follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. Joining us, it's a pleasure to finally have him on, is Dave Itzkoff, culture reporter for The New York Times, who writes frequently about film, TV, and comedy. Dave has authored four books, including The Story of Robin Williams, most recently Robin, that was the biography, and Mad as Hell, The Making of Network and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing good. It's nice to speak with you, Robin. Thank you for having me
0: on. Still quarantining out of a mountain bunker somewhere?
1: <laughs> Just taking a little break from the city and out in the Poconos, sure. yeah. But uh, I it's it's much nicer than a bunker, I'll say that. <laughs> I got to ask you, Dave, going
0: back, you know, you and I crossed paths very briefly in college. I knew you as a talented scribe. I think you wrote for the uh the humor newspaper or magazine. I'd bump into it at various parties and other things and then your byline really comes into sharp relief for me as a fellow journalist, as as we kind of both go off in the into the real world for about 20, 25 years. Um, I had no idea until I read the essay that you wrote for uh, New York Magazine, the excerpt, and the significant trauma that you took to college. Uh, My father, the cocaine addict. Uh, this was a piece that you wrote in the aughts, It's very interesting. I know we throw this around a lot, but a person's shadow and their persona. I I saw you as a very functioning, very at home, in place person at Princeton, but you spilled your guts to the world back in 2005.
1: Well, I don't think that necessarily what I experienced as uh, a person growing up prevented me from functioning. It was just, uh, just a part of myself that I, at the time, I, I mean, I just didn't really know, uh, there wasn't a kind of easy way to to make people aware of it. It wasn't something that sort of came up in conversation and even people that I got close to it wasn't necessarily anything that I uh, discussed with them. But yes, I, uh, my father uh, had been a cocaine addict basically from the time that I was born around 1976 and really for the first uh, 20 years of, of my life. And you know, it. it I, I think his experience of it is very different. I think from the way most people know it, you know, through the way it's depicted in in movies and TV shows and that kind of after school special type way. Uh, and I think our the the way that it manifests in his life and in my family was was much different. That he himself he could still basically have a career and run a business, but then disappear for you know days or weeks at a time and. Uh, you know, go on these kind of drug benders where we didn't see him. We didn't see how he experienced that necessarily, but then he would come home and he would be crashing. And so we would see really the, like the sort of darkest, you know, angriest, uh, loudest part of him. Uh, that was the part that he brought home quite a lot. And then he would sleep it off for a day and then he'd wake up and be a very kind of like meek and gentle Guy and easy to get along with and friendly and and care about his family and want to take us on uh, you know cross country mm. drives and so a real uh, kind of Jekyll and Hyde uh, situation. But that was so that was right. the backdrop to my uh, upbringing. Yes,
0: but Dave, you were cognizant of this in the first grade. You write about you know your father coming home sometimes really lucid and talking to you about his regrets. And his aspirations are usually lo- loquacious while he was tucking you in at bed and and you're tipped off that early to this idea that something's really wrong
1: yeah i well, it's hard to know when you're that young because you don't you don't have the language you don't have all the context uh and of course you just you, that at that young you just you you imagine the whole kind of scenarios that are just totally implausible that maybe you know my father is like working a second job at night that requires him to be, you know, out, you know, until, uh, you know, the early morning, or, you know, he's working on some kind of uh, big surprise for the rest of, the, you know, just all these ways that you rationalize it, or just little inventions uh, that you make up, and you don't really know what what drugs are, necessarily. I mean, it was something that my mother had to basically sit myself and my sister down and, and, and tell us about when I was about Ten And even even then, you don't really know exactly what it means to the point that, like, my, I mean, my parents stayed together until the end of my father's life. But in that moment, mm. the reason that my mother was telling me and my sister all this is because she thought that my father and she were going to get divorced. And when she explained that to us and even told us the fact that our father was a drug addict, I still said to her, can I stay with my dad and not you. And like really having no idea what it means for a person to be a drug addict and not really not comprehending the effect that it has on them and the degree which they can't, they really cannot function and would be extremely unable to, you know, parent a child by themselves.
0: Dave, you write about uh, maybe kind of grasping for some element of normalcy when uh, your dad moved the family to Rockland County suburban, you know, New York back in 1991. Right. I'm going to read from your essay in New York Magazine, the excerpt from your book. Though this transition unfortunately occurred between my freshman and sophomore years of high school, the uncertainty that nibbled away at my stomach lining in the first summer of exile was tempered with relief. The farther we were from New York, I figured, the more difficult it would be for my father to feed his habit. Indeed, after we moved, he began to enjoy a sobriety as fragile and as unfamiliar as a suburban silence that now enveloped us. This lasted until the following spring. After months of struggling to make friends at my new school, I had finally been invited to the birthday party of a social studies classmate, a nice Jewish girl with straight auburn hair and a bump in her nose, who was probably just taking pity on me, but whom I thought I had a genuine shot at. All I needed was a ride to that party and everything would fall into place. While I spent that afternoon staring at myself in the mirror and brushing my hair until it was just right, my father was behind his bedroom door, sometimes watching TV and sometimes talking on the phone. But when it was time for him to take me to the party, he was snoring loudly. In my excitement, I hurriedly roused him out of bed into his pants and into the car. And though his breathing was heavy and his waking movements were comically sluggish, I never thought to wonder why he had been home asleep so early on a weekday. But there was something unmistakably wrong about the way he was driving, the way he'd let the car coast too far to one side of the lane before jerking it back on course, the entire vehicle shuddering like a horse that just took a spur in its side. Then, as he maneuvered off a quiet access road and onto a two-way highway, he turned so wide that we ended up in the oncoming lane of traffic. We skidded to a stop, parked backward on the shoulder. I could now see that my father's eyes were barely open and his hands were trembling on the steering wheel. Are you high? I demanded. Deep in his narcotic fog, he was sufficiently alert to know he should be embarrassed yes he stuttered dave i don't understand how you presumably were successful in high school and you put it together and you you had the day job of being a functional kind of awkward kid in a in a new school and applying to great colleges and getting accepted how did you keep it together
1: you know i i can i don't I, I don't entirely i don't have any other experience to compare it to you know like i can't say how i mean how you know i'm trying i'm trying to think of how i can i can put this that you know i'm sure people react to stressful situations in in all kinds of ways and and, and different people grow up with different kinds of of traumas and and some people obviously the effect that it has on them is like extremely Outward and visible, and you know they push back against it, they rebel against it, they become mm. kind of dysfunctional, outwardly mm. dysfunctional in their own way and and honestly, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I imagine others too that like one way that people react to it is just to kind of like put your head down and just like throw yourself even harder into the things that you can you feel you can control, the things you've already been told that you're good at, places where you've gotten encouragement like high school academics, if you had, like I did, teachers who, while they didn't know what was going on in my life, people who just said, hey, you're a good student, You, you have potential, then you think, well, okay, I will just try to put all my energy into pleasing those people. I don't have a father who I can get that kind of, you know, validation from. So let me do whatever these other people are telling me that seems to elicit it from them. You know that was that was a big motivator. I'm sure i I took pleasure honestly, I know it's weird, but I took pleasure in my own uh schoolwork at the time, so at least it was like something to feel good about and enjoy. There wasn't a lot else uh, you know just uh, at at the time but i uh, you know like I, I i don't know I don't know if that's if that makes any sense, but that's just well like, when when, when did you find to... solace
0: when when did you find solace in in letters and writing and reading?
1: Probably from a very, very early age that I've been told that, you know, I started reading pretty young, like age, uh, three or four. And, I, you know, I, I definitely spent a lot of time alone as, as a young, like latchkey kid and just was allowed to like, we, you know, we had a pretty big, Book collection, uh, when I was growing up and I was just allowed to like sit in front of our collection of books and, and sift through them and, and read. So there was that. You know, my parents have memories of me like sitting at the breakfast table and like, you know, you get like a cereal box with like the nutritional content listings on the side and I would just like sit and pour over that and learn to read all the different like names of vitamins and, and minerals. So. Mm. Just from that that age, I guess. Uh, but it it was a long time before I understood that like, you know, writing and, and uh journalism were a career. I didn't it wasn't anything that I contemplated or, or you know, as a way to uh, you know, make my living or to just something something that I could do for the rest of my life, really.
0: Right. You know, you write about your, uh, your start at Princeton, which was 90 miles away from home. You said, I, meanwhile, was pursuing my own betterment with the same single-minded intensity I'd seen my father exhibit in his prime. Some portions of this education occurred in lecture halls and libraries, while others took place in the private tap rooms and semi-secret back rooms of an Ivy League campus where pot was plentiful and cocaine wasn't hard to come by if you knew where to look for it. It would be too convenient to say my father's addiction made me more curious to try drugs and a lie to say I worried that I might have an addictive personality of my own. Drugs were simply a part of the college experience, as integral and as inevitable as final exams. And for once, I wanted to know what it felt like to be a normal, relaxed, acceptably disobedient kid. <laughs> I'm not going to superimpose myself on you. I was a, you know, an immigrant kid from a big Miami public high school, flung into that environment, you're someone with a tremendous amount of trauma. There seemed to have been an equilibrium with your father and a lull of sobriety when you went off to Princeton. How did you keep it at bay? Would you limit interactions? Would phone calls rile you up? This is this is where I'm trying to Yeah. I'm trying to understand how you
1: juggled both worlds. You mean in terms of like the 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 home life that I left behind. That's right. Well, you know, I obviously there I mean there were a lot of reasons why I, I certainly, you know, I couldn't I couldn't like you know cut my family off entirely i not I mean practical reasons, financial reasons, but also emotional reasons that I wasn't I wasn't necessarily looking to exercise them from my life entirely. I still wanted very much to have a relationship with them and to try to find some sense of uh you know i, I mean you said the equilibrium or just a you know a, a feeling of really connecting and belonging with them in a way that I hadn't been able to when I was younger, but that there were still further opportunities when I got older. And just as, you know, being geographically distant enough from them, you know, like Princeton's not that far from Manhattan. It's like just far enough. It's easy enough. You can hop on a train and and be there in an hour and a half. So you, you have the comfort of feeling like, okay, anything goes really wrong Uh, they're not that far away that I can't call on them, but let me try to, let me not have to rely on them if I, if I don't have to. And, you know, they certainly are not, you know, they're not hovering over me. They, they, they trust that as long as they get, you know, the report cards and see that my grades are intact, they don't, they don't have any reason to suspect that anything else is going on in the background. And they're not really going to poke too much to find out. I don't know if they ever understood what an eating club was really, or what Mm. the kind of lifestyle was at these institutions or what I did in my evenings and weekends. They could probably guess my dad was a, you know, he he took a couple stabs at going to college in the 1950s. He wasn't like, you know, he didn't have any fantasies or illusions about what college kids did. I didn't give them a sort of inventory of here's everything (laughs) I I did. But I, I again, I like I can't imagine it was too different from what a lot of other kids were also going through or dealing with at the time. Everybody had their kind of, uh, if not vices, they all had their own mechanisms for release. You know, when you're presented with that much kind of freedom and independence, uh, it's very much on you, uh, the individual, for you know, to how how you you know what you do with that and and how you respond to it. Obviously, we've all seen people that you know they got to school their freshman year. And, and they were wiped out by you know that first uh, you know midterm break. They just completely overindulged and uh, you know had to go home for a little while and cool off.
0: Do you know what spared me in the in the fear and the anxiety of that that fraught freshman year was uh, General So's chicken, lots of it, at three in the morning. <laughs> I think I gained I gained eighteen pounds. It's on my college yearbook. I was like. Spiritual advisor for Friends of General So's Chicken.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all, you know, we all had, you know, like those late night trips to Hoagie Haven or that's you know, right. Discovering that like the Wawa had its own Taco Bell. I mean, that just seemed mind blowing. These very quaint things.
0: Full disclosure I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Dave Itzkoff. He's a culture reporter for the New York Times. He writes often about film, TV, and comedy. He's authored four books, including most recently Robin, the biography of Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams, who passed away. Uh, on this day, just, what was it, uh, back in 2014?
1: 2014, seven years ago today, that's right.
0: And this is also the anniversary, you know, I say August 2001, reading your essay, and that when your father had a relapse uh, back in 2001, shortly before 9-11, what did you want to do out of college? Did you know you wanted to go into kind of the, the journalistic life where you're, you know, living the Bohemian, the, the Bohemian ramen noodles life and just slumming slumming for clips? Like, how did you, how did you compose yourself to... Well, do I that. don't know.
1: I don't know that I thought about it that way, but I think I was very fortunate that I, you know I had a few uh, instructors and professors at Princeton who were extremely encouraging of my work. I took a course, a very kind of uh, celebrated uh, Princeton course that John McPhee uh, sure. would teach uh, every other year there, which was kind of like a preliminary or introductory feature writing class, uh, and he was extremely you know kind to me and and really sat me down and said, this is something you could potentially do after you graduate. Uh, likewise, a writer named Terrence Rafferty, who at the time was one of the film critics for The New Yorker, and he uh, happened to teach like a one-semester seminar on critical writing and film review. In a similar manner, we had conversations and he really encouraged me. Not that either of them said, okay, here's, uh, here's a business card, here's who to call, here's who you should uh, you know, reach out to when, when you graduate, but just even having that kind of pat on the back from people who I really looked up to and whose work I really admired was just something that I kept in my heart and something that I said, mm-hmm. okay, if these people think I can do it, it was something that, you know, at least the pieces that I wrote for them and you know, a couple things here and there that I had written at Princeton for like, you know, the all weekly, that was published at the time, the NASA week. I don't even know if it's I still remember,
0: running. I remember your byline fondly. Yeah. I was like, wow, that guy's sophisticated. <laughs> well, Meanwhile, appreciate- I'm slinging schlock in the Daily Prince, but no, I wrote, like, I'm curious how about how you like, dealt
1: with I don't think that that was really yeah, sophisticated. No. But, but how, did you,
0: how did you deal with the siren call of substances? You wrote about it in the USA. Every taproom had beer at the ready for four or five nights a week. It was grass everywhere. You even managed to find bumps of uh of the white pony. Um what was your first experience with that and how did you how did you just keep that under
1: check? You know, I, I mean I don't know that I did. I mean it didn't it certainly didn't like get to the point that it was for my father, but like he's told me or he had told me stories of his own youth for example, he he went down uh you know when he when he was going to college he went to Tulane uh University in New Orleans and he basically he dropped he dropped out of there twice uh and never never finished and like he really fell into the lifestyle there this is I mean he hadn't wasn't using cocaine but like he got into a lot of uh gambling and also into you know drinking and just kind of like you know uh, basically just ignored all his classes and his grades went to hell so I kind of knew in the back of my mind, I was like, well, again, as long as you don't let the grades uh, and the sort of extracurriculars and the exterior stuff fall apart, you can kind of get away with anything on the other side. You know, just don't let the real stuff, uh, just, just maintain that. Like, like keep going to your classes, keep getting good grades, keep making an effort. And then in the free hours that you have, do, do whatever you want. And I, 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 I kind of did.
0: Uh, tell me about right after college. Where did you get your first byline? Where did you show up? I mean, I just remember there's a tremendous amount of pressure. There are people that are already getting acceptances to uh, law school. There are people that are going to Wall Street, McKinsey. Uh, you know, you have to make such a leap of faith to say, I'm going to go rough it out and, and eat what I byline, you know? Right.
1: <laughs> well, I, I it wasn't exactly like that. I mean, I, I spent... The very first job that I had out of school I worked in the mailroom training program at the William Morris agency. Now they're merged with mm. uh they're now their they're William Morris Endeavor. Uh in any case, I you know, I just, just like my flight of fancy, my sort of imaginary career for a minute was that I was gonna maybe become like a talent agency or some kind of uh you know, Hollywood something or other. And it was just It was a really kind of miserable gig and it did not pay well. And it was even like literally just like pushing a mail cart, sort of weirdly cutthroat and uh, just not welcoming. So that lasted, I want to say, like maybe nine months uh, after I Mm. graduated. And then not too long after, I got hired as an editorial assistant at Detail's magazine. Wow. And right. it was a very weird moment in their history because obviously the magazine landscape is is very different now. This is like ancient, ancient history that I'm talking about. I,
0: I remember it well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Details was like uh, almost like the junior brother to like GQ. GQ was much more like august and meant for, uh, you know, older men or, you know, men of a certain age who could afford to buy all the clothing and finery in the magazine and details was like the junior version of that. It was like the GQ with training wheels. But then there was this kind of mini movement in magazines where like the British lad magazines were starting to cross over and they were finding huge success. Maxim was kind of leading that charge. And so everybody was trying to be more like Maxim and details had literally like hired away the editor in chief of Maxim to now run their magazine. And so Details- Was this a Condé Nast publication? Yeah, uh, Details at that point was owned by Condé Nast. They had- Did you have an expense account? Did you take people out to Michael's? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, not to that degree, but like, you know, my boss was the editor in chief and I had like a corporate credit card in, oh. you know, in in his name. Yeah, I mean, it was really meant more for like, as far as I knew, he could basically buy or expense anything he wanted to at any time. And if he were to instruct me, like, hey, buy me, go out to the Apple store and buy me a new uh, computer. Well, they didn't have, yeah, (laughs) this is 99. So (laughs) there probably weren't even Apple stores at the time. But like, whatever the equivalent is, uh, you know, he could instruct me to do and I would have to do it. So I had my own corporate card, which I never, ever even thought to abuse. I was way too tight laced. I wish I uh, had, had even tried to like bend the line there but I never did but all which is to say that like you know details it was never meant to be like a lad magazine it, it had an identity it was much more kind of it, the word metrosexual had not been coined yet but that was its mm. identity that it was uh you know a fashion magazine for both uh you know like you could put a, a picture of brad pitt on its cover and like it was you know men would want to look at that and women wanted to look at that and then then the the maxim people came in and they were like okay we can never have a man on our cover ever again it's only going to be women. It's <laughs> <laughs> going to only be, you know, young women who are, you know, barely clad and we're going to be, you know, really like aggressively heterosexual. And like, we again, we didn't have this language, but this is like really the kind of like cauldron of like toxic uh, masculinity is being forged in the pages of these magazines. And basically, you know, details uh, failed really quickly in that incarnation. And I managed to get out like just ahead of the axe and actually went to work for Maxim for three years. And that was such a dysfunctional uh, place, <laughs> like a really just so much like, you know, self-loathing, uh, you know, at, at that publication at, at that time, that they were just, it was making money hand over fist, but none of that was, you know, trickling down to the employees. Uh, they just were not treated well. They took it out on themselves. They took it out on, on each other. The kind of like, copy that we were asked to produce was just really nasty, unpleasant, just unapologetically homophobic, unapologetically misogynistic. And I was very, very glad to have gotten out of there when I did.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Dave Itzkoff, culture reporter for The New York Times. Please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, recommend us, and rate us, please. We're also on WERA 96.7 FM in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina, in Ventura County, SoCal. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Dave Itzkoff, culture reporter for The New York Times. He writes frequently about film, TV, and comedy. We're talking about his salad days as a magazine reporter at the turn of the century in New York. I mean, that's when I that's when I moved to New York and did it as well. We actually had expense accounts. There actually were ad pages and everything. You talk about your disgust, you know, sullying your hands in this in this corporate culture at maxim, where we all had to work at places just to get bylines. We were always looking for the next thing. Of course, now, you know, twenty years later or so you're at the New York Times, but I'm reading your essay about your father, and a day after you and your sibling had a lunch in Manhattan with uh, your mother, uh, you get a call, he said, before you'd even risen for your usual Sunday morning routine of a half-join in the McLaughlin group, you were awakened by the ringing of your telephone. This is in 2003. With some concentration, I was able to recognize the jittery, ethereal voice on the other end as my father's. I need your help, he said. I need you to get me home. I briefly thought about hanging up, then reconsidered. Just tell me where you are, Dad. I said, I'll be there as soon as I can. He told me the street name and to look for a red door. And then his voice faded into silence. Uh, Dave, let me tell you, after I read this, when it first, I I just saw this excerpt in New York Magazine back in, I think it was 05, I could never, you know, I'd, I'd go down to Penn Station to catch a train or I'd be down by the Port Authority. I always thought of you. And I always thought about what was rushing through your head as you jumped in the cab and went down there and pounded on these doors to find your dad nearing death with just kind of nose soldered shut, you know, his eyes soldered shut, uh, looking like a shell of himself. You didn't know where he had parked his car. And I read this essay and that he. I, I don't want to lose it, but he in the cab that you managed to commandeer and convince them to drive you back to Rockland County and pay the cabbie however much as you cleaned up your dad and you saved his life, he essentially tells you that you saved his life.
1: Well, that's I mean, you know, that's that's what he says. I mean, you know, I I look obviously it was a very fraught moment. I don't know that he was like literally about to die. It was something that he had put himself through quite often, in the sense that it was a very common ritual for him to basically, you know, go and, you know, supply himself with cocaine and, like, check himself into some really kind of, like, you know, threadbare, flea bag type of place, a single room, and just spend, you know, hours, if not days straight getting high and, to, you know, and incapacitating himself. And then, you know, this was by no means the first time that, like, he called me while he was high or he would call my mom or my sister while he was high and like basically asked for our help, like get me out of this. I can't do it myself. I don't either. He wouldn't know where he was or he would realize well enough that he had messed himself up and that, you know, he was not going to be able to get himself out of that place alone. He needed somebody else's assistance. I, you know, and, and look, there are certainly previous times in my life where I got that same call, maybe when I was as young as like 13 or 14 and I would just either you know, hang up on him, or I just be extremely scared and not know what to do. You know, I had rebuffed it so many other times. And, you know, I feel a certain amount of guilt and, and disappointment in myself sometimes for having done that. And then there are times when I think back about it, and I'm like, well, what, what else could I have done? How was I supposed to have handled that or be the one to know what to do in that situation? It was, uh, it, like, you know, sometimes I'm really hard on myself and then other times I'm like, why are you so hard on yourself about this? You're not the one who, uh, you know, you didn't, you weren't the one who did anything wrong here. So, it, it, you know, I wrestle with it a lot still, those kinds of mm-hmm. uh, moments.
0: You know, a beautiful book that you wrote was on the late Robin Williams who took his own life exactly seven years ago in August of 2014. Um, you, you wrote in, in very wrenchingly about his final days. I don't think the world knew uh to to the extent he was suffering from dementia, Louis body dementia, how much of it was a result of the you know the drug abuse from the early 80s. Uh what drew you to his story? When did you realize that you were going to climb this mountain and and write this book, this this book that was destined to become a bestseller and referred to constantly? Tell me about the first time and and what about this personality drew you to him?
1: Well, you know, I had had this experience of writing about him Uh, You know, at this point, about, you know, 12 years ago in 2009, where I was invited to come on tour with him, what wound up being his last stand-up tour, uh, which followed a period in his life where, you know, he had had a relapse into alcoholism and then got sober again through treatment. Uh, After that, he got divorced from his second wife. And then, you know, had to have valve replacement surgery in his heart. He had started to go on the road and then started having heart problems, had to basically put the whole tour off and, you know, to to have this surgery. It was like like a massive uh, undertaking that could have essentially ended his life when it happened. So part of the tour and part of, I think, the purpose of having me go on the tour was like, show the world that he can like physically function, that he is back in whatever form that means. And what I had really no way of anticipating, I couldn't have have known, was just like how forthcoming a person he was at that point in his life, how open he was and how, just how like relentlessly uh, candid he was. And I didn't really know him at all. We'd had like one previous phone interview for another article I had written about like a Bobcat Goldthwaite movie that he starred in. So that was all the like context or uh, previous history that he and I had. And suddenly we're having whole conversations about, you know, his experiences when he was getting drunk again and his attempt to get clean and him talking about how much he understood that he had let his family down, his children down, really wanting to make things right with them again, just all just falling off his tongue and not because of anything I did or said, or really anything that he knew about me, it wasn't like, hey, you know, we both have this history uh, having to do with uh, substance abuse and recovery. Let me share this with you. He just wanted to tell people this story. And I was just really taken by it that, you know, anybody, any human being, when you're a reporter and you're trying to sort of get them to open up to you a little bit, it's always delicate. You're always trying to be careful and, and, and get them to be truthful with you as best you can. And it's even harder, uh, essentially with, you know, celebrities because they're so protected. They have, they feel that they have so much of their sort of personal public image at stake. They've been very carefully media trained on, you know, what to say, what not to say. And he just wasn't like that at all. That it just, he, everything was, was on his sleeve. Everything was, was out in the open and that feeling really stayed with me. I just never met anybody like that before. And I mean, this is a story I tell at the end of the book, I've told before, but like in the course of our interviews and conversations, you know, it had come up that we were both comic book fans and we both, I mentioned the store that I liked to shop at when I was in New York and he, he said, oh, I go to that store. And like, you know, you think it's the kind of thing that like people just say to be, pleasant or oh you know like oh he's just trying to like butter me up a little bit but not only did he really go to that store but like the next time he came to the city he called me up and invited me to go shopping with him and it wasn't like it, it wasn't like a scene for the article it wasn't like he was paying me back in some way it was that like he had said this he said he was gonna do it he said he shopped at this store and then he really did it and Just seeing him out in the world, like we went to the store, he didn't have a bodyguard, he didn't have an assistant with him, it was just like him and me. And so like the general public can come right up and interact with him. And people were like really just dumbfounded that like Robin Williams is a real person that you can see and walk up to and engage and you can tell him how you know impressed you are with him how much you love his work and he will react to that and he'll be very you know grateful and he'll say something nice to you in return for that or you can say hey here's a new issue of this uh weird uh you know uh, underground comic have you seen it and he'll be like oh no i don't have that one but i i have been reading this series so like you could engage with him like a person like people couldn't get their heads around it and being and like an observer slash like partner sidekick to this whole scene. I couldn't believe it either. It was such an unusual and unique energy and an experience to have. And I don't think he was trying to even show me that side of him. This is just, I think, what happened to him all the time whenever he went out beyond his kind of, you know, perimeter, wherever wherever that was. if He went outside of his home or luxury hotel room or whatever it was where the general populace was. That was how he... Experience the world. And it was fascinating.
0: I'm haunted by a series of, of snapshots and vistas, thinking back to your book and everything that happened with Robin Williams. When I first came to the United States, it, my family, I mean, we'd sit down in front of the black and white television and watch Mork and Mindy. It was always Nanu Nanu, right? And throughout the 80s, you'd see him in all these kind of manic appearances, doing stand-up, sweating on the late show, various things. There was There was the demarcation of Mrs. Doubtfire, there was Good Morning Vietnam before that, which got critical accolades. And then there's this, there's this complete demarcation for me, which it's clear for everybody, is his Oscar winning turn in Goodwill Hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And I'm also thinking of insomnia and 24-hour photo. want, I, 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 and I I felt guilty coming out of that. And how much of the manic persona were we consuming for that long? How much of the real Robin Williams wanted to come out? In the final, say, ten years of his life.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that's fairly perceptive, and I think I think what you know what you kind of delineate as the real Robin Williams. I think that that was always there in sort of various quantities over the years. To some extent, it got subsumed by or papered over by the kind of the the manic, uh, the always on comedian that that side of him because that was how he broke through that that was how he got people's attention and you know rose really fast to you know superstardom as a stand-up and as you know Mork on Mork and Mindy and then I think that became hard for him to shake in a sense that wasn't how he trained that people forget that like He went to Juilliard for three years, and even before that, he had a lot of experience as a trained stage actor.
0: As a mime, as a mime in Central Park, right? There's this picture of him cheerleading with the Denver Broncos, right?
1: Well, even before like the mime stuff or, you know, in, I mean, before he went to Juilliard, uh, you know, he was a student for three years at, you know, the College of, of Marin. And, uh, you know, that had an excellent theater program. And you can literally like you can read local reviews of all the plays and musicals that he did in the early 70s. And you can see all of the like the rave notices that he was getting as like a very young man like in his early 20s and people already saying like this guy is a very talented actor this guy has really has the goods to make it and he's playing you know not he's not playing work from orc and he's not the guy who's trying to do you know a million voices and impressions in in a 10 second span but he's doing you know, Fagin from Oliver. He's playing Snoopy in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, or he's doing right, Shakespeare. Right. So he had, <laughs> you know, he really had that background and that foundation. And if not for, you know, a couple of quirks and twists and turns in his life, I mean, maybe, you know, he could have been on the same trajectory as like his friend Christopher Reeve, that he could have just been. And that's what you, you, you read my
0: mind, the oddest couple stemming from Juilliard in the early 70s. Christopher Reeve, of course, succumbed to his, you know, horse riding injuries and his his paralysis in 2004, a decade before his best friend Robin Williams took his own life. What do you recall Williams saying about Reeve?
1: Well, even in the time that you know I interviewed him, and you know when he and I were were traveling, and at that point it was you know several years after Reeves' death, but it was still something that affected him very profoundly in the sense that. He always, you know, really believed that that Reeve was going to make some some kind of recovery, and even seeing the degree to which he did, you know, improve from his injuries and was able to go out into the world and and you know be present, be communicative, continue to act still. And I, you know, I, I can't know for certain, but I think Robin probably believed that someday he was going to you know stand up and walk again. And so the the fact that he he did die you know, really, uh, you know, shook him or died, you know, uh, you know, died at the age that he did. And and with, you know, still not having, uh, you know, I think achieved some of those things that Robin imagined that he would do. uh, I think that really, you know, saddened him and and shook him up at the same time.
0: Dave, where were you when you learned of um, the demise of Robin Williams?
1: I was, you know, just at home at my apartment in uh, New York. And it's almost like a kind of fairly commonplace sadly, uh, ritual now that I think a lot of people, we still go through in the sense that like, you just start seeing people tweeting something and you're kind of like, like you see it enough times and people aren't like, you you know, fact checking each other's work. So people are either just retweeting uh, what they see, or they're just cutting and pasting what they see in other people's posts, or they just write, you know, this person's name, question mark, whatever, you, you know, you know it when you see it. It's, it's like, it's so kind of like ingrained in our culture now, but just being a a, a professional journalist, I'm obviously not going to just start retweeting other people right away. But I asked my colleagues back in the office at this point, it was like early evening in New York. So I wrote to, you know, a couple of my colleagues who I knew would either still be in the office or just still tuned into like that day's paper, basically saying like, Hey, I'm seeing people tweeting about this. Have you heard anything? Do you want me to at least, you know, I, I, I remain in contact with like Robin's camp and his world. Do you want me to check with them? And they hadn't seen anything either. So they like, okay, yes, go ahead. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't even remember how many, like how, how few minutes elapsed between me, you know, emailing his publicist to say like, I'm really sorry, but like, I'm seeing these things. It wasn't, it still isn't like uncommon to see false reports of celebrities dying. And so you just say, hey, I, I'm sorry, I see this right now. Do you, is this, is this true? And then to get, you know, basically a prepared statement back from them saying, you know, this is what we know. Uh, you know, Robin Williams passed away earlier today and they gave the date and, you know, there was a brief, I think, uh, quote from his widow. And so, yes, it was true. And it was very tangible, very quickly.
0: Uh, full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Dave Itzkoff, culture reporter for the New York Times. He frequently writes about film, TV, and comedy. Dave, in the ten minutes or so we have left with you, I want to know how you cast the net. Uh, everybody returns your calls. You're not slumming I don't know it. About at, that, at, but thank you. At
1: saying.
0: details, at details, or Maxim, or uh, you know, in the mailroom at at a talent agency. I this recent essay you wrote about Cecily Strong on Saturday Night Live. Again, I'm thinking about. Uh, shadow and persona. This is someone who I must imagine is constantly in stitches, always making me laugh. I, I just see her face, I see her countenance. I could see it on Schmigadoon, you know, which is on Apple TV and other places. But she shared a whole other
1: side of her life in grief with you. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back in the sense that like she did that because she wrote a book uh, about all those experiences. About essentially, or the core of it is like you know, the start of her pandemic experience, but how that came two months after a cousin that she was very close to had died of uh, brain cancer. And so she was already in this kind of mode of of mourning and, and sadness. And then barely two months later, you know, the pandemic really just kind of like envelops us all. And so it has some effect on how she perceives it. Uh, and and her pandemic experiences touch off all this other kind of remembrance of her own life, other uh, experiences of loss and grief and people she knew who died young or tragically or both. So it wasn't like I, you know, got her, cracked her open to share this for the first time. But she's somebody that I had written about on previous occasions, done other profiles of and interviews with and just never, I mean, she's a very thoughtful person. I always knew that. And like, You know, I mean, she always I talk about in the story, she always plays these very kind of like outward, effusive, uh, you know, loud characters. And that's just not who she is in real life at all. And so, we, you know, I would had previous conversations with her about like, where do these characters come from? And she'd given me answers. But I just had no way of knowing in the same like that. Like that was the life that she had led before getting to SNL or that's the kind of person that she is behind the scenes and so you know for the first time i think really kind of understanding okay that's why you know like this is who she is for real when she's not on the show this is why those kinds of characters maybe appeal to her or you know what motivates her to want to play them but there's they're very different things and that like you know we see a portion of her on this show and like a. A very talented part of her, but that still doesn't really tell you fully about the person that she is when the show is not on the air.
0: Hmm. You know, you're writing about SNL, Elon Musk hosting SNL. You're writing about how uh you know uh, Nassim Pedran embraces her inner teen boy in Chad. Uh where do where do you start? What's the process like? Because again, you are at the times, you are gonna get your calls returned. Uh, you you write with what kind of cadence? I mean, one or two pieces a week?
1: Uh, it depends. It depends. I, I think uh, a sort of benchmark for myself, I think maybe like one feature every like week to two weeks, that would be that feels right to me. I, I nobody's ever like hovering over me saying like, OK, when's the next thing coming? We need it by Friday. But I know in my own heart of hearts, like if I don't if I don't write something after a certain amount of time, if I feel like I've like either fallen out of practice or I just don't see my byline out there, like I start to get uh, panicky. So like, I, I, you know, I just kind of keep to a rhythm that feels uh, comfortable for me. And, and nobody, nobody has ever said to me like, Hey, you got to step it up, Dave. Let's let's where, where's the, where's the next piece? Come on.
0: Well, what is the relationship like now that you are, I, I you know, you're, you're up there uh, warehousing yourself in the Poconos. Uh we have this Delta variant. I mean, New York was a terrifying place in the throes of the worst of the pandemic back in the spring and summer of 2020. But uh what what are you doing to connect better with sources like the Cecily Strong interview or I'm thinking about David Harbour of Stranger Things and uh Black Widow and you know Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. How do you connect with these people because I know if you had your Druthers you'd be at some place in Hell's Kitchen. Or a comic book store down near Union Square meeting these people in person?
1: Yeah, you know, it just, it totally depends on the sort of, basically the comfort level of the subject. I mean, I did an interview last fall, I guess this past September, so almost a year ago now, with David Letterman that was in person. Uh, You know, we just, we we, we did it, you know, outdoors in Tarrytown, overlooking uh, the Mario Cuomo Bridge. And that was at his kind of uh invitation i would say like i i you know we neither of us could have been vaccinated at the time he didn't you know he was open to like doing it in person and i was glad that he was the cecily strong piece that was in person i went up to see her in uh like the hudson valley in upstate new york but a lot of it yeah definitely has been you know is happening on on zoom and, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. I like, obviously, like, you can do it in person. That's always, I think, the best. You really get a sense of them. But Zoom has been pretty good, too. At least it's better than, like, a phone conversation. You almost feel like you're in the same room as the person you're talking to. You get some sense of, you know, personality and just their presence. Uh, you know, you do a phone interview with somebody, and it's like, you know, the publicist connects you on their cell phone and then two other people are listening in on their cell phones and there's like a 15 second delay and <laughs> somebody cuts out, and it's, you know, like that's, that's not very useful, but at least, you know, engaging, uh, you, you, know, like over a computer screen, there's almost that illusion of like, uh, intimacy. You know, in closing,
0: uh, David Itzkoff, uh, your father passed away two years ago in 2019 uh, I I want to know what the what the final 10 years were like or so because there's this big gap between the time you wrote about it and everything happened and your your career really truly exploded. You're not going to pat yourself on the back, but I I want to know about that kind of, you know, Times Square to suburban New York and notoriety and your relationship with your father.
1: Yeah, I don't think that it really they're they're, they're two very different things. I'm proud of the work that i've been able to do i've i've really enjoyed it tremendously and i continue to but i felt like my father you know lived a life that i think it was satisfying to him but in in some ways was just very like increasingly isolated that uh you know he and my mom moved uh like upstate to the catskills he moved his whole business there and i I think in like in his mind that was like, you know, winning the game that he was finally like in the surroundings where he always wanted to be. And he could kind of kick back and his business could be right there. And he could just basically run it, you know, either from his home or if he wanted to pop by, you know, his like kind of warehouse and check in on things, he could do that. But, you know, in practical terms, like it was pretty far away from the city or just far enough away from the city that it was not, it wasn't easy for him to come in. And it wasn't easy for us Uh, you know, really any of the family members to get up to, to see him. And, you know, like when my son was first born, you know, he and my mom would like come down and and see us occasionally. They were, you know, they came to the hospital at the earliest juncture. But I, I, you know, I still got the sense that like, you know, I think it was hard for him to just like make the physical effort to come into the city. And I think also in an emotional way, like to kind of reach out or extend himself that, you know, and it certainly makes me think of things that like Robin Williams said to me in the sense that like, you know, after he had had his relapse into alcoholism and kind of had a sense of at least imposed on something he imposed on himself was this feeling of guilt. And, you know, I really, uh, you know, he really felt like he had stained himself in the eyes of his family and could never completely get past that. And I, I, I wonder if I saw my father go through something similar, that even though he was clean, as far as I knew, he never, you know, relapsed again. But just knowing in his own heart and carrying with him, you know, his knowledge of his own sins and never really being able to let go of that fully and allow himself to have a kind of, you know, adult relationship with his own son and with his grandchild. You know, I think that that's I, I, I felt like I saw him go through some of that.
0: David Skoff, really grateful for this. You were listening to David Skoff, New York Times culture reporter. He frequently writes about film, TV, and comedies. The author of four books, including most recently, Robin, a biography of Robin Williams. Uh, thank
1: you so much. You are always welcome to come on. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: Full disclosure special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link full D Radio. Com. Please rate us, subscribe, and recommend the show to others. And a hello to our radio listeners up in Northern Virginia and D.C., down in Asheville, North Carolina, out west in Ventura County in SoCal. Uh, holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening and back with you next week.